It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Film lovers, welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. The show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, full disclosure, because I'm in a play right now, uh, I'm in a production of Richard III, which you can see at the Indie Fringe Basile Theater, happening uh, Fridays, the next two Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Uh, Fridays and Saturdays at 7.30 p.m., Sundays at 2 p.m., depending on when you're listening to the show. Go to IndieFringe.org for ticket information. Uh, wasn't able to see anything new in the theater this week, and a screener that was supposed to be sent to me had technical issues. So we go and do a... Uh, I'll, I'll let you know what's opening at the drive-ins right now first, and then we'll get to a, a long-form interview I did uh, earlier this week. Over at the Tibbs, Despicable Me 3 and Cars 3. There you go. Also opening Baby Driver on screen 2, along with 47 Meters Down. On screen 3, Transformers The Last Night with All Eyes on Me. Screen 4, The House, along with Wonder Woman. There you go. Over at the Skyline in Shelbyville, Despicable Me 3, along with The Mummy. Hopefully the kids are asleep. Uh, shows are piling up as far as getting sold out at the IMA Summer Film Series, but if you're listening to this on Saturday at 7 o'clock, you can still see Bedknobs and Broomsticks at 7 p.m. on Saturday, July 1st. Friday, July 7th, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The Indiana Black Expo Film Festival, Saturday, July 8th from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Friday on July 28th at 7 p.m., and uh, a couple shows are sold out. And then the last one that's still available, Friday, August 18th, Serenity. So those are out there. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I got to do a long-form chat with te television chef Nick Stellino. He has a new program, uh, began in April, called Nick Stellino, Storyteller in the Kitchen. 
And you can go to nickstellino.com for all show all the show information. Uh, we talked about the show. He talked really behind this a lot of behind the scenes stuff as far as uh, filming a, uh, a a cooking program. And then we talked about cinema and cooking and cinema and other for, long form public radio goodness. Here is my epic chat with Nick Stellino. Buongiorno, Nick. How you doing? Buongiorno, Matthew. Very happy to be here. I appreciate it. So uh, I know it premiered in April, but how is uh, how has Storyteller in the Kitchen been in your world? Uh, the new television series on public television has done extremely well, beyond my wildest expectations, and I think that the new format, the new filming approach that we have taken with it, much more of a cinema, cinematographic uh, angling than a TV uh, angling, I think has brought forth uh, a whole new interaction with the audience. I was about to say, from, yeah, from a from a, a visual standpoint, it, it is film. I mean, I think we're used to what looks like live television with the three cameras and the ceiling cam, that sort of thing. Exactly. And I think also, I mean, you've always been a great storyteller. I wonder how the balance has been between cooking and storytelling this time around. Well, I would like to tell everybody that I'm a genius. I knew exactly <laughs> what I was doing. The truth is I'm a complete <laughs> idiot, and I had no idea what I was doing. That's on your business card, right? Well, that's how it is. Um, what happened was that we wanted to do something completely new, and we wanted to adopt the cinematographic uh, approach to the storytelling that would bring the food into a forefront uh, with a significant close-up look. But primarily the idea was that we wanted to create a cooking show that would reflect itself not just greatly on a large screen TV, but just as good within the context and the realm of a telephone screen, or for that matter, of uh, a pad of any sort. Uh, one of the things that I'm noticing is that while the TV industry is big and we have all these fabulous uh, uh, appliances that you can buy at the store, most of us interact visually with the things that we favor through much smaller screens. So wide shots, things of that sort would only make the food, myself, and everything else involved in look like little dots or nothing. So we wanted to really have something that not only would engage people at home in a very significant fashion and kind of take them into the world that we're trying to see. I want you to feel as if you were a fly coming along with me, speeding along, and being able to see the garlic floating right over the bubbles of the olive oil, washing the sauce, reducing, uh, watching the meat cooking slowly while my voice was in the back accompanying it. In the process, we discovered a lot of the lenses that we used were wrong, so we had to change that. We also had to change a significant amount of the lighting. There were some impositions in my kitchen at home that are not as comfortable as what you would do into a studio. And then there was an enormous amount of coloring that was done afterwards by using some of the latest uh, pieces of software available to us through the Adobe Pack. And uh, uh, we turned uh, much of what we shot digitally into almost a film stock, and then from that we colorized it so that it would have a deep resonance with the uh, visual interaction that people have. And this is coming from a guy that until two years ago didn't even know how to turn on an editing machine. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered if they let you in the editing machine during, the, during those times. One of the things is that I am fully aware of the dimension of my stupidity. Uh, and I think that's one of the greatest gifts that God gave me. I mean, I know what I cannot do, and I know when I do encounter genius. Well, I, uh, These I, uh, young men and women that worked on my crew, uh, all of them far younger than me. I'm 59 on the way to 60. Uh, the average age of the people working on my set uh, starts at 25, and the oldest one, I think, is 38. I can hear my gray hairs getting grayer when you do that. The beauty of the future is in the eyes of the youth. Yes. And the reason why is because 
they're totally unafraid, they're willful uh, in their ways of uh, accepting, taking risks. And it came to a point in which I said, I've done it this other way for over 20 years. How about I invent something new? What to invent? I wanted to have a visual style that would match the melodic storytelling that is of the essential essence of me on how I refer to food and how I tell the story about food. Mm-hmm. To be able to match the images, the sequence of the images, the sound that goes along with it, there was a composition of a series of alliances and understandings between me and people far smarter than me that ultimately took me to this yield and result. In the end, it's true. I was in the editing booth. But what I wanted them to do first is to at least give me that rough draft or I could help them into the, the, what we call the, the, the hard spots where they did not know how to move from one scene to the next, but to fill the flow of one image to the next to keep it concurrent with the sound and the storytelling that I was doing in the background. In the end, I became a very active part of the editing team, but one that only was able to give the advice and the suggestions once the main flow had been decided, and once we found ourselves stuck in areas where we were looking for an innovative idea to come through. To tell you the truth, this gave me back 20 years of my life. I've never felt this young. I never felt this happy. And even when problems were so devastating that it looked like we had lost it all, I just wanted to go to work and make it happen. That... That is a gift from God. Absolutely, and I, w- I think what's great is you, you call it cinematic, and it is filmed. The fact that they, you know, there's a big enough budget and enough trust because of your reputation and experience that you're able to do that with a, with a better stock. Um, the other thing I, I was curious about was, that especially if you're doing live demos, there is a there is the timing of when to tell stories and when to cook. And I think is it true with this format? You don't have to worry about that. You can tell a story without the fear of burning something. Spartacus was the yell uh, that I trained this young men and women into using. <laughs> uh, and it did come. I remember many times them working until the wee hours of the morning. I would get a call around 5, 6 o'clock saying, Nick, we're still in the editing suite. We are lost, man. I just don't know how to move it from this. I said, why don't you guys relax? I'll have my coffee, and I'll come on over, and we'll figure this one out. <laughs> And one of the things that I realize is that the reason why we most times don't progress forward is because we are so attached to the traditions of the past that we refuse to think that there is a better way, that there is a different way. So I remember them looking at me strangely when I walked in there and I looked at them in the face and I said, yell with me. And I said, what do you mean yell with you? Said, yell with me. Spartacus. And they go, Spartacus, what the hell does it mean? And I said, listen, Spartacus was a slave. Spartacus was a general of an opposing army against the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire took its greatest expansion into Gallia and even into Brittany at that point. Spartacus is the one man that was able to coagulate into a single thinking army, a group of rebels that until then were nothing more than just ants being stepped upon by the greatness of the Roman Empire. And with the training that he himself had learned from the great generals of the Oman Empire, he was able to coagulate an army and through a series of unexpected moves to ultimately command a complete escape from the grasp of the oppressing Romans. Legend has it that uh, when he came to the cold Alp crossing, uh, that he indeed was one of the few survivors that was able to make it past the Alps and back into Gallia. Now, they've been true or false, it doesn't matter. It's the idea of the fact that there is always a sense of freedom beyond what you find yourself enslaved into the things that you cannot understand. If you do accept defeat, if you do accept the impossibility that things cannot be done, at that very moment, and I don't care how much money you got in the bank, you are a slave. I'll tell you this. 
I'll take freedom of a cash any day. And in the process, I didn't count money. I didn't count how many shows we tossed out the window. I didn't count about anything. All that I knew was there was a new way, a different way, and I was going there. Now, my bank account suffered enormously as of that. But if I was to die tomorrow, I have in my hand something that says, this man meant something, and this is how he sang his song. And for that, I'm grateful to God. So I think I was given a great gift. And, and I'm guessing with the Spartacus uh, reference, they, the, the crew isn't old enough to ask you, how come the Romans, r- r- the Roman lords were English actors and the slaves were American actors? <laughs> yeah, that they come. There were several beers that eventually helped into the kind of commentary that came afterwards. Yes, the fellows were not afraid of talking to me in, in such terms. Yes, it did happen. So um, how, many, how many shows can, could, you, could you bang out in one day? No. This was not a one-day situation. Okay. This, this was a horrifying, <laughs> slow poke. It took me the best part of a year and a half to produce 13 shows. Wow. And within the 13 shows that you ended up with, finally, I must have tossed away at least six or seven complete shows, hmm. uh, issues with lighting, issues with sound. I'll give you a technical issue that I never thought of. Because of the fact that we were not working within the context of the studio, rather within a private home, uh, the angulature of the light was such that with different cameras reaching in for the shots, more often than not, the shots had to be thought out and manufactured, thinking of the shading effect, thinking of the different angle that would come, the different way in which the lenses would respond to the light, and how to be able to encapsulate the light within the context of capturing the image. One of the biggest problems we had is that my DP of photography, Dylan uh, Muster, a genius, by the way, this man is a genius. Uh, has this bad habit of racking his shot, meaning before he gets into the subject, he likes to go in, out, in, out, locks the shot, and then he goes in. Mm-hmm. Well, that can work well if you're not trying to match the shot with the sound, but when we kept trying to make it as we used to do it in studio, of filming it in real time, the racking of the shot was the most irritating thing in editing you've ever seen. So what happened is that within the context of us working together, seeing the problems and the mistakes together, instead of saying they're yelling, you, 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 we understood how every single movement that we make and the way in which we are considerate of those around us help us create something that becomes an art form. And I think it was beautiful within the smallness of the space, within all the difficulties within that we found the perfect solution to manage sound, light, and content. Um, I, I think this was for me like going back to school. It was uh, one of the greatest moments of learning something new and understand how to make it even better. So for this season, I mean, how did you prepare uh, what recipes you were gonna you were gonna make with each episode? Ah, uh, you're not gonna answer that. You're not gonna like the answer. <laughs> okay. I would go to the market. Whatever was fresh that day, it's what I would cook. <laughs> well, that's how we eat, or how we well, should that's eat. The at way least. I saw it, I said, "Why am I gonna do something that is not in season right now?" <laughs> So the guys go, well, so what are we going to cook? You don't worry about it. You set up the lights. I go to the market. I get all the ingredients. I'll chop them all up. So everything was cut to measure the day of, the moment of. So if you can imagine, those were like 16-hour shoots, 14-hour shoots that we were doing. And uh, by the time I was done, it would take me another three or four days to recoup. And I'm a man in somewhat of a decent shape in spite of my age, but uh, those things were very, very difficult. On my feet, uh, taking over the scenes, uh, fixing the light, dealing with all the things that everybody has to deal with. But in the process, we learn. And we learn now to the point in which I can actually produce the same series without all those mistakes that are made. I know exactly the angles that we want to use. We have now used this type of craft that we developed for ourselves 
to make uh, a real business out of it. We do a lot of uh, um, interviews with the large company CEOs that are looking for people like me and my crew to paint them in the most romantic fashion that they've ever seen. Uh, we can make anybody, no matter how good-looking or ugly you are, look like the greatest and the most significant movie star ever. One of the things that I came to understand is that lighting and editing are at the very core of being able to assist in the telling of a story. If there is a story, I can make it shine. And I have to tell you, it's like a whole new horizon opened up before me, beyond the cooking shows alone. So I guess uh, with that, now that I got that question, my, my follow-up was going to be, uh, do you have a list of stories that you want to share? But I think I might know the answer. Go ahead. No, there is no stories that I uh, that, that that I have pre-planned. I, I will simply say this: it was at a moment in which it was a particularly bad day that we were filming. I mean, uh, airplanes. I have two private uh, air, airports nearby, so you can imagine you're in the midst of a scene doing the perfect uh, rendition of a commentary or a, or a teaching of to move from one step to the next. The words are coming to me. I feel gifted. Uh, in spite of the fact that English is my second language, I find as if uh, I can be articulate and elegant in the kind of things that I try to explain, like I am in my original language, Italian. And then something happens. I don't know. A, a light blows up. A plane goes overhead. Uh, the whole scene crashes. I possess all the best of my Italian heritage, including a temper. <laughs> and one of the things that I've learned is that anger, the explosion of a temper, takes you nowhere. After the moment takes place and you think that you've liberated yourself of the devils you keep inside, what you've done, you spread fear all around. Mm -hmm. And what is the point of having people working for you who are afraid of you? You know, in something that's articulated from a point of beauty, it has to be a team where everybody wants to step in front of a bullet to save the person next to you. If you don't have that, you ain't got nothing. Mm. And so at that moment, I came to realize I can either be the boss or I can be part of a team. Um, I chose to be part of a team and in the process to understand my pain and their pain and to make it so that we can make something great happen, something far more important than me, far more important than us as a crew, something that will live forever as people will refer to it. Oh, I remember that. And it was at that moment I think that when we became a unit, that we became perfect in the undertaking of everything that we did. There was never yelling on my set. There was never screaming on my set. There was never a pointing of fingers on my set, even under the most disastrous of occurrences, and there were many. Uh, that, to me, is the most prideful achievement of this portion of my career. In the acting world, that would be an ensemble. Yes, I would call that a creative ensemble, of which I was nothing more than one of the many participants. I happen to be the guy on the screen, but I am not the genius behind it. <laughs> In fact, I, I think I'm taking one of the things you said on the show, I'm borrowing it, and giving you credit for it, that, that my wife is also a genius because she was smart enough to marry me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you come to understand the depth of the comment. Oh, big time, of course. Um, it's funny because doing research for this, you talk about you make what's whatever's fresh in the uh, in the you know at the store. Going on your website, nickstolino.com, you know, it, it, just like any other viewer, you kind of pick a pattern of things that you will watch. And it, it turned out, of all things, I got hooked on the desserts for a while. I think when people think Italian, of course, they think of dish, you know, pasta dishes and seafood. But um, watching you make pudding, three different types of pudding, by the way, um, yeah, I, I really want to chase Mrs. Sosie around the house after watching this. I have to say that one of the greatest things is that, and this could not show on TV, but after I cooked the food, we all ate it. Yes. So I knew that I was onto something great when I saw how 
my crew members were eating the food. And I'm thinking, darn, look at them going at it. And I go, they would turn to me, oh, my God. This, and they basically saw everything being made fresh in front of them. Mind you, I did the same thing in studio in Seattle where I did my show previous to this for 20 years in a row and where I developed a friendship and a closeness to my crew that, that really allowed me to produce some excellent work. And that was based on the fact that we ate together. As a matter of fact, to my knowledge, I'm one of the few chefs that not only hires the crew, but as part of the, the compensation, uh, we all sit together for lunch on a big, long communal tables, and we share the meal together. And I will cook food for everybody. And they say, you know, Nick, we do a lot of productions, but nobody ever takes care of us like we're part of the family. I remember one of the executives from upstairs uh, once uh, at the studio sending uh, his uh, secretary down to pick up the food to bring back to his office. And I stopped the girl right at the door. I said, he is welcome to come here anytime he wants, and he can have anything he wishes, and I'll personally buy for him the wine that he wants. He's going to have to eat it here with us. This is a family. (laughs) And it was understood. I do have, uh, I would say, a significant amount of Sicilian mannerism in what I do. But to me, either you're part of a team and you mean something, or you're just a loner and might as well go jump off a bridge because you'll never get anything done. No man is an island. You've got to memorize that. At my age, that's what you come to realize. You're only as great as the power of an idea that comes out of your head and can be communicated with others. If you cannot communicate that idea, that idea is just a puff of hair inside your head. You're the only one who gets it. What have you done? <laughs> And uh, absolutely, and I, I also thought of while watching the uh, I think I'm saying it, the the the, the Pentacotta, the the drama of will it leave the mold and will it leave the mold in one piece? And it was real. <laughs> 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 what well, you don't know, and now I can confess it to you, I had made eight different pieces of that, <laughs> and the first six just for whatever reason came out not looking great. I'm thinking, come on, I only got two left. I cannot make this from scratch again. The whole show is going to be busted. And that comment that I made, will the panna cotta, it was actually meant to please God, please, at least this one, make it come out, please. <laughs> See, it, it, it reminded me, my daughter and I would make creme brulee, and we always said, worst case scenario, vanilla soup. <laughs> You're better than me on this commentary. <laughs> well, is and then uh, watching your your banana cream pudding, I'm I'm at my desk and my family's walking past when you bring up the secret ingredient and I yell at a computer screen, rum. So it's it just it's a lot of fun. And you you talk about um, taking risk in the kitchen. I, you use an example of not using a double double boiler for making pudding. Can you give a couple other examples of tape, taking risks, especially if you're filming with a crew? Well, filming with the crew, I'd say that was not the brightest of all ideas. But I was lucky enough that I had enough technique and I've done that so many times that I felt quite secure and comfortable. But there is something that is important. I, and I think that – how do I explain this in a way that makes sense? Uh, my wife tells me that I'm a risk taker. I don't think I'm a risk taker. Honestly, I think I'm the most conservative man that ever was. I believe that everything that I've done is the most conservative approach of everything. This big leaps that give others white hair, to me, is the only choice that I have if I want to go and get where I think that I can be at. Uh, there is no other way to do it. Um, in the process of cooking, I think that we reflect within ourselves as we prepare food for ourselves and for our friends, not a state of being conservative about what we do. But we would like to express, through our ability of cooking, 
this wonderful exploitations of these great feelings that we have inside. And when they come through your food, through an attempt that you make that favors the outcome of the ultimate recipe, at that moment you feel this huge sense of pride. And the greatness of what you've done is reflected into the food that you will serve to your family and friends who will find within it not just the nutrition given to them by the protein that you present, but by that act of love, by, by the moment where when, when you thought that you couldn't and you took that shot and it worked in your favor, it's success. Food is in balm, it's filled, it's, it's effervescent with the sense of this human joy. We just don't understand that because we don't get it from a package that you buy at a supermarket, but we all have it. And I think the food is the greatest of all the outcomes of the deployment of this passion that we have. I find myself being extremely fortunate in being able to do this for a living and to show to others this beauty that I see that I would like for them to see themselves. Uh, I would like, you know, a millennium from now still for people to say, hey, let's do that. Yeah, let's do it Stellino style, even though they won't want to know what I look like. But I would love for that to happen. You, uh, a while back, you did, well, I know on this series, you did a, a peppered steak. And prior to this, you had done a coffee rub steak, which, and you used the term in one of your videos, a disastrous series of events. And I, I had two that came to mind. And you helped, uh, one was trying to do the coffee rub steak which I, I inflicted upon my family, didn't go well. Finally, well, and then there were two things. One, you did it. So I, I pointed out, especially to my daughter, see, I'm not a crazy person. A chef is actually doing this. But I, there was also a spice company that had their own coffee, which, which really helped out with the balance. Yeah. Um, the other one was my, my failed tequila chicken experiment. Um, if you You have to mix... Stuff like lime juice and soy sauce, and you can't just dump a protein into booze. And uh, I had to learn that the hard way. But but I but whether you knew it or not, you backed me up on the coffee rub steak, and I appreciate it. Well, that one actually it was a very difficult dish to make, and I completely understand your pain because if you don't get the the balance just right between the tartness of the coffee, the sweetness of the sugar, and then the enhanced elevation that is brought forth by the other spices you know, paprika, uh, the additional sugar, onion powder, garlic powder, and so forth and so on, the steak, you know, might be overwhelmed by something that has a negative crust uh, and taste of grittiness around it. Yep. For example, one of the things that I'm experimenting with is that most of the coffee that I buy, that I buy for my coffee machine, is, is ground thick. So now what I usually do at home, I give it a secondary uh, uh, chop, I would say, in, inside my food processor just to make it more powdery-like so that it dissolves better within the texture of the meat. And I found that the flavors tend to penetrate even more. So there might be a version two coming with the next series. Kind of like an espresso fine? Yes. Actually, you grabbed it right there. Exactly. Okay. It's almost like if you can do it down to an espresso powder, I think that has a even better penetration and emollifies itself even more with all the other spices, making friends a lot easier. Good to know. I'm going to make a note of that. Um, watching you on on screen, and I wondered at times how many takes you had, because I think there there is a there is a warts and all aspect. I think when you're when you're talking, when you're performing, or I'm performing, but when you're sharing, and uh, and I think there's a vulnerability that you know, especially when you're telling stories about your family and growing up as a kid, and I, I think it's it's admirable to to open yourself up that much, especially on television. Well. Let's do this then an exclusive on your show because I never told the story before. Okay. Nobody knows. Um, 
um, well, here's what happened. Uh, in the middle of uh, producing the show, uh, through a, after a series of disastrous uh, failures, a bunch of individual shows that we had to burn and send away because they were not what we wanted, at least what I wanted, we found our, our flow, our tempo, and we're just doing wonderful. Honestly, I thought I could actually bring the series on on budget. And then I got a call uh, from Sicily, and I was told that my mom had a stroke, uh, and that she was found uh, in uh, her home, uh, and she was taken to the hospital, and things did not look so good. Uh, my brother was the one that made the call, and said, Nick, uh, I need you. I said, Mario, I'm on the next plane. What people don't know is that the one time there was the Luxembourg attempt, uh, the horrifying disaster that took place at the airport, uh, actually it was Brussels, if I remember correctly, that shook off all of Europe because of the bombing that took place. And for four days, I could not get an international flight. I was so nervous, so broken, that I threw out my back uh, on the plane uh, flying to Sicily. I had to take five different planes to make it there because that was the only combination that I could get in such a time. I remember getting out of the plane, bent into not even being able to carry the small bag that I'd taken with me. My brother was waiting for me, and the first thing that we did, we went to see my mom. And my mom uh, had a stroke, and she was in and out of consciousness, and she spent most of her time into this world that I didn't understand. Her eyes would be darting about, and she would say gibberish that I couldn't understand. And every once in a while, she would come back to us as if nothing had happened, as if she was there forever. So I just stepped out of the plane. I looked at my worst. I was bent over. I was in pain uh, physically, but I was even more pain in my heart looking at my mom like that and thinking, what am I going to do to fix this? And she woke up and she said, hey, Mario, Nicola, look at you two guys. What a pleasure. As if we'd, we'd talk about it like this forever. We just saw it just a couple of days ago or something. I said, Mama. Then she looked at me. She goes, Mario. Is Nicola cooking all the time? And my brother says, yes, he is. Oh, I'm sorry for you, Mario. He uses so many pots and pans. Nicola, you've been cooking pasta all the time, haven't you? I say, yes, Mom, I have. Then she puts her hand on my tongue, and she goes, oh, my gosh, you're fat again. Look at you, Maron. <laughs> it was at that moment I look at my brother and say, she is back, Mario. She is back. Only shortly afterwards, she disappeared into the world, and, uh, and two days later, she passed away. When I came back home, I still had to manage to do a bunch of other different shows. And for as much as I tried to keep this feeling of loss to myself, I think that many times uh, these feelings popped out uh, in a way that I could not control. And the camera not only filmed the show, but stole a piece of my soul, <laughs> a piece of my soul that I wanted to keep to myself. Because I figure, you know, I am no more, no less than a man who has the same problem with a billion of other men and women around the world who see the end of life of their parents and don't quite know how to handle it, and they think of what does this world means. And the greatest torture that I had was being in editing and editing those shows and making sure that whoever would watch the show would only be exposed to the joy, the beauty, the happiness. A chapter does not make a book. A moment in life does not make the whole life. The day that I lost my mom was worse than me losing a part of myself. I think still somehow, I don't know how I'm going to get it back, but I'll tell you this. I wanted to make sure that when you watch my show, that you feel happy, joyful, the way she made me feel when I was in her kitchen, when we cooked together. To tell you the truth, far more than financing, far more than distribution, far more than editing, managing my feelings so that only the joyful part of my memories would come forth in camera was the most difficult thing I've ever did in my life. 
the fact that I was so successful that no one else noticed that there was any sadness within, uh, I think is the greatest acting job I've ever done. And in the end, I think my mom will be celebrated for the beauty that she truly was and not for the sadness of her passing. So there you are. That's what, how it happened. What was, uh, what was your mom's favorite pasta dish? Pasta al pomodoro. She just liked tomato sauce, and she was a master of making it. <laughs> I, uh, I I I do theater from time to time. I was a, th- a theater minor in college, and uh, uh, my mother passed right after my junior year. And it was it was hard at times to be on stage and doing things. But you kind of it, it comes up, and people think it's a great performance, but it's coming from a different place. It does, but right. I, I think I don't like to make other people unhappy or uncomfortable. Well, how are you going to talk to somebody when somebody tells right. you, you know, my mom passed away? What do you expect them to say? Exactly. I yep. mean, and why should you ruin their day? And why should they? I'm thinking this is a passage uh, of life. Uh, it's, I was fortunate to have had her as a mom, but I don't want her to be remembering sadness. I want her to be remembering joy. As a matter of fact, uh, the one thing that I did after my mom passed, I made an announcement uh, on social media, and I gave away uh, my favorite cookbook. Mm. Uh, and I said, uh, go here, down." 50-some thousand copies were downloaded in a very short period of time. And people say, you know how much money you could have made? And the way I look at it is different. The way I look at it is this. Think about this. 50,000 people I didn't even know now, they're going to have this book in their hands and they read the stories of wrote about my mom that will cook her food, and she will be far more famous for the right reason than a simple prayer in church would be. To me, that was a gift from God, to have the opportunity to spread her ashes in a literary form and to have it find its joy in the world. And to tell you the truth, one of these people was uh, a person from uh, Iran, believe it or not. Ah. Where I discovered that my show is on some network over there where it's translated in Farsi, and apparently right now I'm a big shot in Iran. I'm thinking, how is this happening? <laughs> Can you imagine the Salinos being talked about on the street? Hey, did you make that like Massimiliano, <laughs> like Vincenzo? Because Nick doesn't say so. We'll have to work on that tour. That cracks me up. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, the, uh, there's another moment I, I absolutely adore, and it's from the other show, but it's another example of, of you being you, of you opening yourself up. You did a show, if I remember right, it was steak and martinis, and you were talking about how it's, it's every guy pretending to be James Bond. And you, you know, and you know, you talked about guys looking in the mirror, and you said, and and you said, my name is James, James Bond, and you you flubbed the line, but you kept it in the show, and you you started cracking up because you got the you got the quote wrong, and I thought you could have easily done a second take and corrected that, and I wondered, tight budget or that's just you? No, failure is funny. <laughs> I mean, yep. uh, I I think. That if you hide who you are, eventually it's going to catch up with you. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know how easy of a job I have? I don't need to invent anything. <laughs> I shop on TV. What you get is what you, who I am. Yep. I don't have to think of this character who doesn't exist. Now, many of the other uh, chefs that you see on TV, I know most of them. I worked with them. And they're nice people. They're good people. They are great dads, moms. You see him nasty, it's because some junior producer tells them that that's the way that the show will get ratings, but right. not because that's the way they are. So uh, I think that one of the greatest lies is when even as teachers we are forced to become ridiculous because becoming ridiculous is the way to attract attention. Uh, that to me is nothing. I mean, the greatest uh, asset that I have in life is freedom. 
I am nobody's employee. Exactly. I do my show with my money, my way. I don't care what this guy thinks, what that guy thinks. I take my risk. I put it out there. If it goes and it becomes successful, it was me and my whole team that made it happen. <laughs> if it goes wrong, I deserve all the blame because everything that went crap, I had control over it. I did not know what to do better, and I deserve all the blame for it. But I'll tell you this. I'm never going to be doing something for ratings because when you sell your soul like that, then you've got nothing left. Yep. And you can check this out at nickstolino.com for the shows and the books. Now, now, shifting gears a little bit, Nick, this is, this is a film show. Uh, have, you, have you watched anything recently? No, but I'm going to tell you something <laughs> that's going to make you quite surprised. Okay. Uh, and then I will talk about the downfall of the movie industry as we have. <laughs> All right. Uh, I immigrated to America in uh, 1975. Uh, but I really did not get my full inspiration until, uh, I think, in 1981, uh, I saw a real crappy movie called The Best of Times. Uh, Robin Williams and, was in there. And Kurt the Russell, movie, yeah. in my opinion, is one of the greatest movies of all time. And the reason why I called it crappy is because it was one of those family silly comedy where they're pairing up two upcoming stars. Yep. Uh, and he was one of them. I forgot the name of the other great actor that was with him. But the story is of a man who had dropped uh, the ball in a high school game, and for his whole adult life, and now into his early 40s, he was living with the regret of dropping the ball, uh, considering the game as the marking event of his life. And within the context of the movie, uh, the story goes that at one point uh, his wife says, look, instead of bitching about it all the time, how about you play the game again? The man thought, yes. Why not? And through his wits, through his abilities, through his intelligence, through his cunning, he's able to not only reset the game, but to actually invite all the original players and them have all show up in this great game that gets played uh, in, uh, in the movie. In the end, uh, he catches the pass. In the end, he redeems himself. But the idea that I love the best is that it ain't over until it's over and you're dead. That movie inspired me to really make a step that changed my life where I said, that's it. I'm not going to be trading bonds and stocks anymore. That's my last day at the trading desk at Merrill Lynch. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to become a chef. You say, a stupid movie like this could do that to you, and that is the power. And that's what most people don't understand. Making movies is first and foremost an art of, which involves storytelling. But that story is not going to go anywhere unless it connects with somebody in the audience. And this, I call it to be one of the most powerful connections that I've ever seen within my own life where the storyline of a movie affected me and my willfulness to change my destiny. Now, talking about the movies in general, what has happened is that we're too much into special effects, that the ability to tell a story seems to have lost. And furthermore, I think that these days some of the best movies are not found at the movie theaters, rather they're found in television. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, the experience that used to be going to the movie theaters, you know, this big, huge screen, and the ability to see something that you can only see at home in a much smaller screen, that it's been taken away. Most of us now have TVs and sound systems that are just as good and comparable to what we get at the movie, and we don't have somebody sitting behind us with the stupid popcorn that I would like to... Let's leave that alone. <laughs> now, so so you're, you're de-glamorizing Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso is completely different. Right. Cinema Paradiso is filmed at a time in which going to the movie was a physical exercise of escaping reality. I was part of that moment. I figured. I used to go with my mom at the, uh, uh, at the cinema de Say, which used to play old movies. And my mom used to love these great American movies uh, from the 50s, uh, the 40s, the 60s. 
Uh, I, through her, I discovered John Way. Through her, I discovered Burt Lancaster. So many of the American actors that ultimately shaped the way in which I look at the world uh, in this fantasy of heroism that was so clearly depicted in the movie. But those were different times. Life right. was different. Today, you walk down the street, and a child that can barely speak already knows how to look at the cartoons by pushing a couple of buttons on the phone. <laughs> yeah. The uniqueness of the image and the delivery of the image is changing. And people like me, we need to learn how to be able to maintain the power of the story and be able to tell it in a way that still is relatable to people. I, I invite every one of your listeners to come to my site. And you, when you fly to my site on the video, uh, you will find a chapter that is listed there uh, that has uh, all of my videos. And I would yep. say click on the thing that says uh, Cutting Board Confessions. Yep. Those were filming exercises that I did to teach my crew how to uh, film me. I say, guys, you need to think of me as, uh, as if we're doing something from the 1930s. I want you to film. So that, there is one particular video called Nick's Garden, which became the opus. Yep. After we did that, I signed the contract with everyone, and I said, now you can work for me. If you can do something like this, then we can do so. And my whole show was based on the emotion and the visual that was generated by the Nick's Garden exercise. And ladies and gentlemen, if you go to nickstolino.com, Cutting Board Confessions, that is there, as well as questions like favorite cocktail and Batman or Superman. So <laughs> keep, keep that in suspense over there. <laughs> um, who, who gets it right or who had it right when it comes to cooking in film? Uh, I want to make sure I give you an answer that is exactly for the question that you asked. You're okay. talking about actors and actresses, or you're talking about or, the technique that had to be surmounted. Or who, who, you know, who, who got, who filmed life in a restaurant, or who filmed cooking right in your world? Well, within my world, there is a lot of changes that are taking place. You're noticing right now that just about everybody's trying to look at a new, different way of filming food. But the mm -hmm. problem is that. On public television, you still maintain this essentiality of teaching. So when you watch my show, Lydia, uh, John Bash, and uh, everyone else uh, that is part of our network on public television, you see primarily a series of teachers that want you to know and to get how to film the recipe. But most of them, however, do come from the restaurant trade. And from the restaurant trade, their ability to illustrate a small and finite detail is not connected as well to the visual connection that the producer brings in taking that thought, that idea, and realizing into a linear form that ultimately explodes as the sense of simplicity with all of us that see it. Yet, I believe that public television has the most superior quality shows of any other network out there when it comes in terms of cooking, because the other networks, being extremely skilled in their lighting, in their filming, in their storytelling, they choose to highlight the drama or controversy of anger, of fight, of battle amongst personalities where food happens to be nothing more than an excuse why this uh, uh, little, uh, uh, you know, violent exchanges do take place. To me, food and violence is not something that belongs together. To me, I do not want to see food used as a ball in a football game where people are going to mash each other around and we'll see who's going to win and who's going to be sent home packing with their knife. I hate that line more than I can possibly tell you. <laughs> I, I understand where you're going there. Let, um, let me try this again. I, I, let me clarify a little bit. For instance, um, do you know the film Big Night? Yes. That, I guess what I was saying. I guess that was a failure in terms of food. How so? I'll say two things. 
there is an important situation that takes place in the making of the timballo. The timballo in itself, as it's done, is a very delicate, delicate dish because you now are dependent on a very thin stream of pasta to support all of these layerings that are done. In Sicily, we have a similar dish called pasta in casciata, where we mix the pasta together with the eggplant. So let's leave the cooking of it alone because even when uh, the gentleman who was playing the chef is in the kitchen playing around and cooking, I can see by the way in which he's cutting, he's moving his hand, that this guy does not know what he's doing. But the storyline is fantastic. I'm looking at the food and I'll go, okay, forget about the food. Just pay attention to the story. Mm-hmm. So the food that eventually came out that they filmed, that they photographed, looks beautiful. I guarantee you it was prepared by someone else, and they filmed <laughs> it as what the food was in the 1960s. But even with that storyline, there is the two elemental stories that come together to an ending between the two brothers in the vision of America. America, one as the land of opportunity, the other one as a condemnation for having had left Italy and having to find a position for themselves in a world that they don't understand. These two men finally are alone on the beach and they have a chance to say something. Yep. And they say nothing. Now, I don't know about your family, <laughs> but in my family, when me and my brother go at it, we go at it. Whatever has to be said, it's said. And we don't kill each other, we don't hit each other, but it's done. And it's finished. And then we move on. That, to me, was a retail of the Italian temperance, of the Italian spirit. It was a negation of what ultimately, especially for a Southern Italian, is the greatest freedom that we have. The fact that we are slaves to our passion, but our passion does not uh, allow us to put a mask on where we hide our true feelings. They come out. That, to me, was the one thing that totally pissed me off. Well, may, may I clarify the ending, if I may? Please do. Um, they ha- actually, they fight on the beach. They have it out together on the beach. The final scene is the morning after in the kitchen where no words are exchanged. At the beach, when he expresses to, when they express to each other the two different points of view, if you remember, he gets so angry, they go, uh, the guy with the ah, mustache, I forget correct, his name. Correct, Tony Shalhoub. Actor, yeah. and I'm sorry I'm insulting him like this because no, no. he did a fantastic job in acting in that movie. I okay. bought a hook, line, and sinker. Uh, but at the end, when you look at that exchange, the he subdues his own emotion just so that he doesn't have to deal with his brother and explain to him the horrifulness of what he's done by sleeping with other women, by ultimately causing this downfall of the restaurant. That objection of feelings to me is a negation. To me, that ending is something that I, whenever I watch the movie, I watch it all the way up to when they do the dinner. I don't want to see the scene on the beach. Fair enough. Like the Sopranos. Right. They gave me that ending on the Soprano. I have not watched a repeat of the Soprano. For all the years that were on, I figure I gave you eight years of my life, and this is the ending that you give me. <laughs> okay. I do get emotional about things. I no, absolutely. I just want I I appreciate the clarification on that. Um, shifting gears a little bit, there's there's a film I recently viewed on video, and I wondered if you knew about the 2015 documentary Cooking at World's End. No, that one I've not seen. Uh, it is a. It's uh, based on a, a a group of chefs in Spain um, doing a group called I think it's Grupo Nove, a group of chefs that uh, it's a club of high end chefs, and and part of it is you get to see the process of, you know, them going and getting ingredients, them going to gather, you know, the stuff for their dishes, their daily routine, but also this kind of exclusive club and the debate amongst the members on. Should they open it up for a wider wider membership and wider recognition? So anyway, it, it's out on video called Cooking at the World's End, if you I add that to your down. watch list. I'm gonna, is it on Netflix by any chance? I'm not sure if it's on Netflix. I got it from a group called Film Movement. Um, and I think you can – There's a. I think it's widehouse.org. 
um, which has a page about the film itself. Anyway, I would uh, something something to add to your queue there. Thank you. Sure. So um, I guess because this is this is airing the weekend of the fourth. Do you have any plans on Tuesday? Unfortunately uh, for me, I have uh, come back from a dentist visit. Oh. And uh, I cracked two crowns, uh, which uh, I were cut out just yesterday. And uh, I don't think I'll be doing a lot of chewing, but I will do a lot of cooking. What? So I got ribs, I got brisket. I'm going to do all-American uh, uh, barbecue for my family and friends. Uh, I'm going to have all different groups of people coming over for the next three days. Uh, and the fact that I don't get to eat, I really don't care. I just want to see my friends around me. I want to see their smiles. I want to see them drinking their beers, telling their stories, and I want to be the guy that brought them all together to give them that moment. That, to me, is a gift from God. Uh, these are the things that I look forward to. It. One of the things that I'm going to be experimenting with will be one last attempt. I always say one last attempt, but there's always <laughs> another one. Or me mastering the art of brisket. I think I must have killed at least uh, 100 pounds of brisket. And, and when I say kill them, because uh, it's the only way in which I can explain it, my smoking technique with the brisket is not yielding the finish that I want. And while others tell me it's great, I tell you it's not, because I go to the restaurant about a mile from where I live, and they make brisket that's so good that my own tongue comes out of my face, slaps me around, and says, you see, that's how you make it. I still cannot do it that way. <laughs> well, good luck on that. <laughs> Um, I would say when it when it's movie night at your house, do you make any special treats or snacks when it's when it's movie night? Yes, we have a selection of movies that we've seen over the years. French Kiss being one of the most romantic movies of all time that my wife and I love to see. Working Girl being another one of the iconic movie that I call the most romantic. Uh huh. And uh, in Working Girl, uh, it's like somebody stole a piece. <laughs> of my history and put it into the writing of the movie, not knowing that basically I did the same thing. Uh, if you remember, there's the scene when they go to the wedding uninvited yes. uh, to get uh, a meeting with the big billionaire uh, who wanted to buy a chain of a radio station. Uh, and the two uh, of them working in the financial field uh, pitch the idea to him uh, while dancing uh, with him at uh, his daughter's wedding. Uh, I remember how I got uh, one uh, particular uh, financier to listen to my idea for a cooking show and convince him to give me the money, and I did it by basically uh, faking a moment as a waiter at his, uh, this event uh, so that I could get two minutes with him to listen to what my idea was. Uh, eventually, I was kicked out. I was never given any money by this particular man, but we still uh, stayed in contact, and he invested with me in other things afterwards that he was secure that I could do it. But when he looked at me the first time, uh, he, he thought I was crazy. Many years later, when we saw each other again, he said, you know what, i got to tell you, you had some stones on you for doing that. <laughs> I said, well, to tell you the truth, it was the only choice that I had at the moment. I said, I admire him, and he puts it on the line. My wife once told me that the greatest thing about me is the exact degree of my stupidity where I do not understand fear, and I'm unable to calculate what could go wrong. And even when it goes wrong, and I'm, when I'm in the dust and I'm still wondering if I can get up, I think, what is the next thing I'm going to do? Because I have another idea. Stupidity is the greatest gift that God ever gave me. For me to be able to put it in film, if I am granted a gift from the gods above where my wishes should become reality, I would like to disappear from the front of the camera and become a guy that from the back of the camera can tell the story of others and bring out the beauty that it is the gift of life. Most of us are bitching about all the things that we're not doing right, more taxes, less taxes, more money, less money, whatever. How about the fact that you're alive? 
How about the fact that every day you breathe, that you look around, that you can love, that you can change, that you can invent a new world? And I would like to tell that story. And uh, I'm almost 60 years old. Let's see, before I get turn 90, I get to do something like that. Uh, you show no signs of slowing down, sir. That's, that's for sure. Do you, do you remember the first movie you took your wife to see? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I don't recall right now, as you asked me the title, <clears throat> but it, it was a movie that uh, was based on the life of Bob Fosse. It was a great musical at the time. All that jazz. Um, and uh, it, it's a story of this man that, uh, in the midst of performing this great directorial uh, debut of this play, basically faces to death and all the elements and the feelings that he has within. That, to me, uh, was a... A masterpiece. I cannot read all the jazz. All that, yeah, all that jazz. jazz. Yep, Roy Scheider. Yep. Yes, that was the movie. Yeah. Oh, great, great. Right out of the gate, really good. Yeah. I have shown my daughter most of the Bob Fosse films. She she's fifteen, and uh, I showed her Cabaret, showed her uh, Sweet Charity, showed her all that jazz. Still need to show her a couple of the dramas, but uh, I, I was informed that she would not watch Chicago with me. She's going to watch that with uh, with her mother. And I said, why? And she says, I know you like Catherine Zeta-Jones. I don't want to hear you. So smart daughter, smart girl. Well, to me, one of the greatest movies of all time was Rio Bravo with John uh, Wayne yep. and uh, John Ford at the helm. Uh, Dean Martin also in that film. And if I remember correctly, there was one of the movie uh, that was made uh, to pay for another movie production. Uh, and what I love is how the studio got the movie made with a compromise that John Ford would be allowed to do this other movie that he was so in love with. The thing that I would like to grow up to is to be able to play a movie like John Ford uh, filmed in Ireland with John Wayne. Uh, the Quiet Man. I would like to be able to do it in Sicily. I, all telling a story that's a Sicilian story, but to be able to bring that empathy of humor, humanity, and love, uh, I would like to be the guy that you say, "Let's go watch a Stellino thing. Let's let's <laughs> let's have a few laughs. Let's feel good about life." Mm -hmm. I do not want to be the guy that tells stories that are going to depress you. I know that they're important. I know that they're needed. But trust me, I got plenty of that in my own life. When I'm at the movies, <laughs> I want to have a good time. Actually, I'm looking it up. I think. Um, the, the John Ford film you might be mentioning is Rio Grande. Sorry, you're correct. Rio Bravo is Howard Hawks. Rio so, Bravo so. was a later movie. That's you right. are correct. Well, you know, the, your pledge dollars at work. That's okay. But I, I, you know, a lot of Rios and John Wayne films back in the 50s and 60s. That's okay. No, but it was the documentary. I remember seeing it on a John Ford celebration on AMC some yes. years ago. And there had a lot of commentary in between that were describing this man, John Ford, as not just a great director. But as a man who always insisted on having the same members of his crew because he did not want to teach to others how to understand his odd thoughts. Yep, yep. And they used to basically call him uh, the John Ford players. And for many of the movies that he made over the years, he was so successful because his people knew his moves even before he was to call them out. That's right. Imagine the greatness to have a family like that that will follow you in all your work. That must have been quite something. And it sounds like you are, built, you are building your own Ben Johnson, Harry Carey Jr., Ward Bond, Victor McLaughlin. Um, yeah, that's, quite, that's quite, quite the group. Another ensemble, you could say. I, I remember <laughs> at one point uh, when... When none of the shows were coming together and my producers were looking at me and says, I have no idea where we're going with this. I said, fellas, we're so far from the shore. We try to go back. We're going to die. 
the only way is to go to the other side. <laughs> if we don't have a show, I'm going to have to return all this money that I don't have. So let's find the show. I said, aren't you afraid? I said, fellas, I don't have time to be afraid. Let's go. Let's see what's over there. And eventually it went. So uh, to have the show so very well received, you know how many times I've done the best of me only to see great failure before me disappear, the humiliation that follows with it? For once, how cool is it that something that I love, like life itself, like my next breath, <laughs> connects with the people exactly the way in which I want it to? I, uh, I am right now one of the happiest men in the world. Always fun. That was my epic chat with celebrity TV chef Nick Stellino. His uh, program is called Nick Stellino Storyteller in the Kitchen, which you can see on the Create channel. Uh, go to uh, nickstellino.com for all the information, and hopefully you have Create, and you can find it there. So, and don't forget, folks, Friday and Saturday and at 7.30 p.m., and Sundays at 2 p.m. at Indie Fringe Basile Theater, you can see uh, William Shakespeare's Richard III. It runs uh, this weekend and next weekend. So I guess if you're listening to this show on Saturday, tonight at 7.30, tomorrow at 2 p.m., and then the following Friday and Saturday at 7.30 p.m., and then the following Sunday at 2 p.m. through July, uh, July 9th, William Shakespeare's Richard III. I'm in it, full disclosure. I'm playing King Edward and Lord Mayor. So uh, if you want to see me on stage, there's your chance. All right, ladies and gentlemen, some words to live by. Silent Green is people! Zardoz has spoken. I almost forgot the midnight movies. Uh, if you're listening to this on Saturday, tonight at midnight, Ponyo in English. Next Saturday, and uh, Friday and Saturday, July 7th and 8th at Keystone Arts, Grave of the Fireflies. July 14th and 15th, The Love Witch. July 21st and 22nd, Fantastic Planet. And July 28th and 29th, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Had fun seeing The Room last Saturday night as well as The Devils the night before. Midnight movies are a lost art, but you can go check them out at Keystone Arts. Enjoyed that. Okay, go see a good movie. You deserve it. Otherwise, hope to see you at Richard III at the Indie Fringe Basile Theater. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. <laughs>
No. That's not what I said. I can't believe you let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What parent are you? <laughs> When I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live!